Please uh, take your Bibles, if you would. Let's remain standing and turn to Romans chapter 8. I'll begin reading at verse 1 and read through verse 11. This is uh, God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for preserving your word down through the ages. Thank you, Father, for this particular word this morning here in Romans chapter 8. We pray, I pray, Father, that uh, your spirit would open our hearts to its truth this morning, apply it to our hearts and lives, Lord God. May the words of your servant be your words this morning. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. You may be seated. You know, uh, living the Christian life to the glory of God is a struggle. Uh, in fact, uh, the Apostle Paul described it in Ephesians 6 as a struggle that's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the principalities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Often, uh, it may seem in your life, as it does in mine, that we're losing the struggle, on, sometimes on a day-to-day basis. But God has some encouraging words to say to us this morning through the Apostle Paul in these 11 verses that we just read. Theologian J.I. Packer uh, said, if you, could, if, if you could look at the Scriptures as a big mountain like Mount Everest, the peak of Scripture is Paul's letter to the Romans. And then he said, and the peak of Romans is chapter 8. So we're at, the, we're at the top here this morning in these 11 verses. 
We might ask, well, why did Paul write chapter 8? The answer uh, may seem silly, but uh, it's yet true because he had just written chapter 7. But it's what he wrote in chapter 7 that's significant. Because in chapter 7, verse 7, he raises the question, is the law sin? And of course the answer he had to give was no, the law is not sin. But the law is a source of sinning. In the sense that the law stirs up the desire to disobey. Uh, When I was in the Air Force, uh, I remember the building where I worked... The, the grounds were just immaculate, the Air Force Base. And as you walked along the sidewalk, about every 25 feet was a, was a sign right by the sidewalk that said, don't walk on the grass. And just seeing that sign made you just sort of want to step, step over there. It was kind of, it, provo- it was provoking. I'd have never thought about it if I hadn't seen the sign, you know. Well, the law is like that. It stirs up the impulse to disobey. And so Paul describes that himself in chapter 7. He says, For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And he then ends the chapter by saying, So then... I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I saw I serve the law of sin. Paul is sharing with his readers what the law has to say about him, about himself, and in essence about them. The law speaks not of privilege and achievement, but of failure and guilt. And uh, in fact, to be diagnosed by the law is a miserable and depressing experience. And so in order not to leave his readers in that state, he reminds them that what is decisive is not what the law says about them, but what the gospel says about them. And that's why he writes chapter 8. So you could divide the chapter really in two main sections. The first section would be the first 30 verses, and you could call it the adequacy of the grace of God. And then in verses 31 to 39, or 31 to 39, the adequacy of the God of grace. And you would have that chapter sort of in mind. The chapter begins with no condemnation and ends with no separation. I mean, it's all good news, isn't it? <laughs> so... Let's dive into it here. Verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, you need to ask what it's there for. And in this case, it it, it relates back to everything that came before. From from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to dealing with what God has done for us in delivering us from the penalty of sin. In the first four chapters. And then the blessings of that in chapter 5. But also dealing with the power, the deliverance from the power of sin in chapter 6. The immediately succeeding context after verse 1 here interprets how Paul is using the word condemnation when he says there is therefore now no condemnation. 
He's not dealing with justification here, which we normally think of when we think of no condemnation. He's not dealing with justification in the expiation aspect of Christ's work, but with sanctification, with what God has done to deliver us from the power of sin. You know, when we think of salvation, we need to think of it in three tenses. There's the past tense, the present tense, and the future tense. And the past tense deals with what God has done to deliver us from the penalty of sin, from God's wrath that we read about this morning in our, in our bulletin. That we will not experience God's wrath. We've been delivered from the punishment of sin. But it has a present tense part of salvation, and that is that God is presently delivering us from the power of sin. That's mostly our message this morning. Delivering us from the power of sin. But also there's a future tense. We will be delivered from the very presence of sin. And he speaks to that actually in verse 11. So think of that in terms, and what Paul is dealing with here is what God has done to deliver us from the power of sin. And he says that this no condemnation is for those who are in Christ Jesus. I did some research on how often, just in the epistles, how often the phrase in Christ Jesus or in Christ or in Him is used. It's used 127 times. And that doesn't count the verses that speak about believing in Jesus, but just the phrase, that, that concept of being in Jesus or in Christ Jesus. Most of those are by the Apostle Paul. Uh, we, we saw it uh, two weeks ago when we started Ephesians. Just in the first four verses, it's used three times. It's used ten times in chapter one. So it's used 15 times in, in Paul's letter to the Romans. What do we mean by being, what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Well, it has to do with our unification in Christ. If you look back to chapter six, notice verses five and six. For he says, we have been united with him. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Now you see with used there, united with, united with, crucified with. There are about four different words in the Greek language for with, the word with. But this, is, this word that's used here is almost always used as a compound word. In a compound word, it really means together with. And uh, in these verses, united with him in a death like his, united with him in a resurrection like his, crucified with, those are three compound words with the word with a part of it. How do you distinguish between, think of it this way. Let's say uh, you were gonna bake biscuits. And so you got all the ingredients out. You got the flour, the baking powder, the salt, the sugar, the shortening, the eggs, the milk, and you're setting them on the kitchen counter there, and the eggs is with the milk, is with flours, with they're with there on the table. But then you put them all in a bowl and you mix it up, and you could say, well, the flour is with the is with the is with, you know, they're with in a different way though, right? You can't really, it's hard to separate it. And it's even more so after they're baked. That's what it means to be in Christ. We're so in Christ, so united with Christ, that there's no separation. And that's a wonderful concept. 
And that's, and that's why it's used so often in the New Testament to grasp that idea of we are in Christ Jesus. And so back in chapter 8 here then, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And verse 2 supplies the reason why that's the case. For, or it could be translated because, because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What is the law of the spirit of life? Well, the spirit here is, is the Holy Spirit. And uh, how is law used? Well, the, it's determined by what's, what law is contrasted with. It's contrasted with the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life contrasted to the law of sin and death. Law is used in this connection as a, a regulating and actuating power. Like we talk about the laws of nature, for example, the law of gravity. It's a regulating and actuating power that happens. So we could say, for example, if you got on an airplane from St. Louis to fly to Chicago, you could say the law of aerodynamics has set you free from the law of gravity. <laughs> and you'd be right in a sense, right? That's what he's talking about here. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that is operative in us to make us free from the power of sin, which is unto death. That power is operating in us, and it's operating only in those who are in Christ Jesus. So the whole part of this verse is sanctification. It's being freed from the power of sin and death. In verse 3 then, for or because God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. But what, what is it that the law could not do? Well, the answer is found at the end of the verse. Condemns sin in the flesh. God condemns sin in the flesh. The law could not condemn sin in the flesh. The law can declare guilt, and that's what it does. It declares guilt, but it cannot execute judgment upon the sin to destroy its power. So the question is, did Christ, did Christ, let me read the whole verse here, we'll, we'll look at it a little, a little closer in a minute. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He, that is God, condemned sin in the flesh. So the question is, did Christ, in His work once for all accomplished on the cross, do something decisively in reference to the power of sin, which can be construed as condemning sin in the flesh? And the answer is yes. And it's found in chapter 6, the verse we just read a moment ago. Chapter 6, again verses 5 and 6. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Now notice this. In order that 
the body of sin might be brought to nothing. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. This, in fact, this is a teaching of Jesus in John chapter 12 when he, when he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey just a week before his crucifixion or a week before his resurrection. Only five days before his crucifixion or four days. He said this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. John 12, 31. Here, victory over the world and Satan is representative as judgment executed. And judgment language is used there. And Paul says the same thing when he writes to the Colossians about victory over the power of darkness. says this in Colossians 2.15, He, that is God, disarmed, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in the cross. You see, the power is broken. The serpent has no fangs. Uh, the power of sin is, is broken. We, we are set free from slavery to sin at the cross. And how did God do this? By sending His own Son. The Father sent the Son. The Father, the, the, the initiative of the whole process of redemption starts with God the Father. To his love and grace. It says he sent his own son. And that indicates just the uniqueness of this sonship that the, that the father has in relation to the son. And the uniqueness of, of the son, the son in relationship to the father. It's, it's parallel to John's use of only begotten son. This father-son relationship is different than the sonship of adoption, which Paul talks about in verse 15 of this chapter, of Romans chapter 8. It's different than that in the sense that this father-son relationship has always existed from eternity past. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. The intention here is to take into account that the Son of God, not in being sent by the Father, became human, but that He took on human. He took on the human nature while remaining Himself. So, he uses the term likeness because he couldn't say that, that he sent his son in, in sinful flesh. That would have contradicted the sinlessness of Jesus for the New Testament, which the New Testament clearly affirms. He's concern, concerned that when the Father sent the Son into this world of sin and misery and death, he sent him in a manner that brought him into the closest 
relationship to humanity that he, that he could, that it was possible for him to come without becoming sinful himself. That Jesus was holy and undefiled, and the word likeness guards that truth. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, don't miss those two words there, and for sin, in other words, the intention for Christ's coming was to deal with sin. The simple yet profound truth is that the coming of Jesus into the world had no relevance apart from sin. That was his mission. He condemned sin in the flesh. Keep in mind, the Father is still a subject to this clause. It's the Father who condemns sin in the flesh. He is the agent. And we, we kind of narrow our concept of the work of Christ unless we take into account the action of God the Father in those events which are at the center of our redemption. The Father executed judgment upon sin. And in the execution of that judgment upon sin, sin lost its power. It was deprived of its power. Which means we're not under the control of sin. We can fight back. We can say no. And the beneficiaries of that were delivered from the law of sin and death. And walked not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now verse 4 lays out the intended outcome of what God did. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met or fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's the purpose. Holiness is the purpose. Holiness. The Holy Spirit perfects us. He is the directing power in our lives. And it's what God promised in the New Covenant through the prophet Ezekiel that we read this morning in our Old Testament passage. He will give you a new heart and a new spirit to put within you and put a new spirit within you. He says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways and be careful to obey my just decrees. Or as Paul writes in Philippians 2.13, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So God is actively involved, the Spirit is actively involved in enabling us to walk according to the Spirit. The law's requirement will be fulfilled by the determination of the direction or set of our lives by the Spirit. By being enabled more and more to say yes to the Spirit and no to the flesh. To more and more turn our backs toward our self-centeredness and to turn our faces more and more toward the freedom we have because of the Spirit of God who has has been given to us. 
Now, verses 5 to 11 then provide kind of the explanation for the phrase, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And it's simply, it's not simply a contrast here, it's talking about, it's showing us why the persons in view walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. The flesh here, you can think of it as human nature as corrupted or directed and controlled by sin. That's the flesh. It's uh, what you feel when you want to step on the grass, so to speak. It's It's that directing power influence that's happening. So, notice that verses 5, 6, and 7 all begin with the word for. Again, he's giving reasons or explanations here. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, these three, in these three verses, minds or mind is used five times here. He's talking about a mindset. They set their minds on. Those who allow the direction of their lives to be determined by the flesh actually take the flesh's side in the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. The spirit of God. While those who allow the the spirit to determine the direction of their lives are taking the spirit's side in that conflict. It's a mindset which absorbs our thoughts, our interests, our affections, our purposes, and includes our mind, our will, and our emotions. In other words, the battle is in the mind. That's why Paul says in chapter 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Reminds me of the boy who got in trouble for misbehaving and he comes to he, he says to his dad he says dad dad it's like I've got two dogs battling fighting each other inside me a good dog and a bad dog which one's going to win his dad said the one you feed and that's true for us in our in this battle it's the one you feed it's the one you set your mind on And so he says in verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. The wages of sin is death. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. You see the contrast here between the spirit, between life and death. The spirit is life. The mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Death is separation. It's separation, estrangement from God. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Uh, that's pretty strong. Pretty strong words. It's, it's actually hostile to God. Angry at God. The reason... The mind set on the flesh is death is because of this hostility toward God. The essence of sin is to be against God. 
It is a contradiction of God. It, uh, it's conditioned and governed by this hatred toward God. And so it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's why, you know, Paul writes in chapter 11, as he quotes from the Old Testament, I mean, in chapter 3, he quotes from the Old Testament, talking about the unregenerate mind. There is none who seek after God. No, not one. About their, their lips being lips of vipers, hostility, hatred toward God. They do not submit to God's law. They cannot because they don't want to, because they have a hatred toward God. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So hostility toward God relates to, in a sense, this radical corruption of the unregenerate person. Uh, in Reformed circles, we refer to total depravity. And that, that can be, uh, I, think I, could be, I think radical corruption is a better term, but total depravity sometimes thinks that, that we're as bad as, it doesn't mean we're as bad as we can be. Total means that every part of us is infected with sin. It's like dropping, putting a drop of ink in a bottle of water. No, it's not ink, it's not a bottle of ink, it's, a, it's still a bottle of water, but every molecule has been affected by that drop of ink. Every single molecule. That's what we mean by total depravity. Every part of our lives, our mind, will, emotions, everything is, a, is a, infected with sin. And that's why no one, we, we, we think of people, we think, we think, well, I know some people who aren't Christians, but they, they do good things. And it's sin, and it is maybe good for society, but in God's sight, it's, infe- it's all infected with sin. They cannot please God. A person who is in the flesh cannot please God. That's total inability. You have total depravity and total inability. It's only by the grace of God that a person can be changed. That they can have a new heart. It's only by the grace of God. Total inability. It is a moral and psychological impossibility for a person without Christ to please God in any way. Now, verse 9. Actually, 9, 10, and 11 here. Let me just read 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, I want you to notice that if there. Because we read that and we think, well, you know, maybe, maybe I don't. In fact, there are three ifs here. There's an if clause in verse 10 and verse 11. But... If clauses can mean different things. In fact, in English as well as in Greek, you have an if and it's true. You have an if and it's not true. You have an if and it may be true and it may not be true. You have an if and it's 
may be true, but it's doubtful. All four of those are true in, in the Greek language. For example, let's say your, your, your child is a good student. They study hard and they make good grades and they bring you the report card and you say, see, if you study hard, you make good grades. That's an if and it's true. But there's also if and it's not true. I use this often when I play golf. It's like I hit a shot, I'm approaching the green, got, got the right distance, but I'm off the green on the right side. And I say, if, man, I had the distance right. If I would have just hit it straight, it would have been a good shot. That's if and it's not true. <laughs> so let me just say that all three of these ifs are what's called a first-class condition if. They're all if and it's true, which means you could translate since. So, let's read that again. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And we know that's true from chapter 5. If you go back to chapter 5, verse, verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through His Spirit, whom He has given to us. So it's not a question. Of, it, it, it's not a. It's not a. Well, maybe and maybe not. It's true. The Spirit of God dwells in you. The believer is in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in the believer. Now they're distinguishable relationships, but they're inseparable. He calls him the Spirit of Christ. Anyone who does not have... He says the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. A person without the Spirit does not belong to Christ. If a person belongs to Christ, the person has the Spirit. Verse 10. But since... Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Again, this underlies the intimacy of the relationship that exists between Christ and the spirit. He says the spirit is in you, verse 10, and verse 9, verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Let me just say that for every verse in the Bible that speaks of Christ being in us, there are ten verses that speak of us being in Christ. And, and that's significant too because of what we talked about, the, the, how, how we see what it means to be in Christ. So the body is dead because of sin. It's looking to physical death. The wages of sin is death. And it goes back to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, where sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because of all sin. Death, the physical death, is a result of sin. And that's a separation. We talked about death being separation. It's a separation of body and soul at death. 
And that principle of death is present now in all of us. And it will become a reality for all of us unless Christ comes before then. So, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And the Spirit is not life apart from the accomplishment of redemption by Christ. The Spirit is the one who gives new life. The Spirit is the one who who opens our blind eyes and our deaf ears and we begin to see ourselves as God sees us and we're terrified and we call out in repentance and faith. Spirit is life. And we are declared righteous in the sight of God. And so it's the Spirit. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. Not ours, but Christ. And in a sense, ours in Christ. Ours because we're in Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Christ Jesus is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in verse 11 then, he says, Since the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, who's the Him? The Spirit of Him, the Spirit of God the Father. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He, God, who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now he's speaking about our resurrection to new life. This is deliverance from the very presence of sin. This is the future aspect of salvation that we talked about, uh, talked about earlier. Since the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, that same God, through the Spirit, will raise us just as it raised Jesus from the dead and give life to our mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in us. You notice the Trinity here at work. God the Father is a specific agent of the resurrection of Christ and the relation of the Spirit and the Father in raising up Jesus supplies the basis for the proposition in verse 10 that the Spirit is life. So the thought is this way. The Father raised up Christ. The Holy Spirit is the Father of the Spirit in this specific capacity of raising Christ. And the Holy Spirit indwells believers as the Spirit of the Father. This indwelling Spirit guarantees our resurrection in Christ. So... The Spirit is perfecting us. We live this life, and, and, and why, why is it that we feel like we're failing? Why is it we feel like we're losing the battle? It's because, it's because the Spirit is more and more showing us our sin, which is He's supposed to do in perfecting us. It's sort of like 
after we've had three cloudy days in a row here, the sun comes out, which is a good thing. But when the sun shines through the window, you, you automatically you, you see that dust on the coffee table that you didn't see when it was cloudy. <laughs> well, that's the way the Spirit works. The Spirit shows up our sin. And we, when He does that, we are to acknowledge it, confess it, and repent. But see, it's good news that we feel that way. It's good news because God is perfecting us. His Spirit is perfecting us. The person without the Spirit doesn't feel any guilt at all. It's the Spirit working in us that brings that about. We are progressing. And you know what? We're going to get there. And Paul said to Philippians in chapter 1 verse 6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It won't be complete until we die. And then we'll be free from the very presence of sin. Because the body is dead because of sin. We still carry around, we still have the flesh, we still battle against it. And we, it's still, we still have something to do. Yeah, the Spirit is working in us, but we work with the Spirit by our mindset. Which dog are we feeding, in a sense? Setting our minds on the Spirit. And the Spirit is working to perfect us, day by day. Month by month, year by year. And it will be complete. We can count on it. <laughs> this is all about sanctification in this verse, in this passage. And it's good news. We're going to get there. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for these, these encouraging words, Lord, in your word. Thank you that, Lord, you didn't leave us with just chapter 7. But by your Spirit, you inspired Paul to write these verses in chapter 8. For our benefit, for our encouragement. Lord, as we go out into this new week, may we focus our minds upon the Spirit. Upon what you're doing in us and through us. Help us, Father, to represent you in our thoughts, our words, our deeds, that you may be glorified in all we say and do. In Christ we ask. Amen.